0: All right, well, we are uh, studying the doctrines of grace. They are doctrines concerning the subject of grace. And as um, we have been going through this, I know for some people you've heard this all before, some have not heard it before. Um, Nobody is born knowing these things. At some point, you have to be confronted with these things. Unfortunately, they're truths that churches are not teaching today they're either ignorant of them and if they're ignorant of them it's because they're not preaching from the bible or they're only preaching parts of the bible they want to preach or they're willfully just overlooking them so it is possible to go to church most of your life and never hear these things which is a sad commentary on the church but you could in all sincerity, want to serve God, and you, you think you're doing the right thing, going to church, hearing a man who says he's a preacher, he has a Bible, and yet never hear these things. Um, that is a reality that many, many Christians face in the world today. And so as a church, we don't want that to be said of us. We, we want these truths to be regularly taught in our church. Um, and uh, if you're here and you've never heard these things before, you're not alone You're not a weirdo. You're not ignorant. But tonight is an opportunity for you to see what God really says on this matter. We're going to talk about the subject of election. And um, in church, there are very few doctrines that would generate more passion than the doctrine of election. People get really stirred up about this. And when I say stirred up and passionate, I mean you either love it or you hate it. There's very little. Well, there is some middle ground. People are just not sure. They're kind of like, well, I'm not sure about this. But people get very, very stoked about this, for it and against it. And so it's it's been controversial in in the church today. For me, as we talk about this doctrine of election, it's much more a testimony for me than it is a sermon. I shared with those of you that uh, many of you can understand where I'm coming from. I grew up in a Christian home, and I came to Christ at a very early age. And well, I just I tonight I interviewed a couple people for baptism, and as I was talking to one of them, uh, he he was saved later in life, and you'll, you'll get to hear his testimony. But I mean, he went from going one way uh, down the path of darkness and destruction and death, and God just changed his path, and he's he's totally different. He's had a remarkable conversion experience. Well, I came to Christ probably around the age of five or six, and although I can tell you, I can assure you, I was a very bad sinner, I, I didn't have a huge conversion process. I mean, there wasn't like a night and day difference. There were some small differences, but one of the greatest conversion experiences that I had... Um, as a christian was coming to understand the doctrine of election it's just like my eyes were opened and for the first time things that i had been taught in church finally began to make sense and i can remember uh, the the moment really when i came to understand the doctrine of election it changed my life it it totally revolutionized my life so um, we're gonna let's are there enough chairs back there, Michelle, for you guys? Yeah. Okay. I don't want you have to come all the way to the front row. That's that's a terrible place to be. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, really, don't. So, what I'd like to do is actually put one more row up here so that no one would sit there, but then they would sit there. So that would be good. So, um, let me see. I want to be clear when we talk about election that believing in election is not a choice if you're a Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, you can't say, I don't believe in election and say you believe the Bible. Because election is not a word that John Calvin dreamed up or Augustine dreamed up. Election comes right out of the Bible. The Bible says we're elect. So if you believe the Bible, you you have to believe in election. Um, the issue really is not the fact of election. The issue is what you believe about election. Okay, so you, I, I'm going to assume we're kind of all on the same page. Like, well, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. Election's in the Bible, so I, I have to believe it. Now, the question is, what do we mean by election? That's really the question. If someone says, well, I just don't believe in election, we could just go right to the Bible, I mean, in probably a hundred places and say, well, here's election, here's election, what do you mean you don't believe in it? So the issue is not the fact of election. The issue is what election actually means, and hopefully you'll understand that tonight. Last week, we started what we call the doctrines of grace, and we used the acrostic of TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. And Marty brought T stands for total depravity. Uh, total depravity really sets the stage for how we understand the doctrines of grace, how we understand election. If you don't understand total depravity, you're probably not going to understand election because election flows from the, the doctrine of total depravity, what the Bible says about humanity, about people. Man, what is total depravity? How would you sum it, summarize it? Inability. Very good. Were you in class last time? He got it. So A plus. So. Inability. It, man is unable to save himself. He doesn't have the power to. And the reason he is unable to is not because he lacks something mentally or physically. Like, you know, if there was a man in a wheelchair here, and he couldn't walk, he would be unable to walk. But that's not total depravity. Man is unable to save himself because he is unwilling to save himself. It is a problem of the will. Man does what he wants to do. And man is unable to sever his will from the love of sin and, and rule of his own, on his own. He can't do it. He's unable to do that. It does not mean that every, everybody sins as, as worse as they possibly can. And Marty did a really good job about explaining that. That's not what total depravity means. But it means man cannot save himself. Man is not going to choose God on God's terms. Now, a lot of people choose God on their terms of what God is, who God is, uh, I'll accept God if he's this, but not on God's terms. All right. So that's what total depravity is. Man can't save himself. And so, ultimately, then, if man cannot save himself, something has to happen for man to be saved. And that brings us to E, or not E, U, T, U, unconditional election. And what I want to do, it's very simple. I'll just kind of outline it for you. I want to define it. I want to define this doctrine of Election. Then I want us to see where this election is found in the Bible. And I will want you, I hope you brought your Bibles, because I want you to see this in the Bible. That this isn't something I'm making up. This isn't something John Calvin made up. This is in the Bible. And so I'm going to be reading from the Bible. I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bibles if you have your Bibles. So we're going to define it. We're going to see where it's found in the Bible. And then I want to explain what it actually means when we talk about the doctrine of election. Let's define the doctrine. The word election is not a difficult word to understand. In November, we're going to have an election. We're going to choose a president. A nation is going to choose its president. The word election means to choose, to select, or to pick out. Okay, Egleko is the Greek word. Um, And it simply means that. It means to choose. It means to select. So when we talk about salvation then, what we mean by that is God choosing or selecting or picking out individuals for salvation. God choosing or picking out or selecting individuals for salvation. That's That's what we mean when we talk about election. Now the question where is this found at? This is really one of the most important parts of the whole message. Where is this found? This is not something that somebody would invent. This doesn't go along with any man-made system. You look at any religion in the world and they are not going to talk about election. That's just not a part of a man-made system. This is something very unique to Christianity. It is found in the Bible. There are do this to keep myself straight. In the Old Testament, the Bible is full of election. It's found all throughout the Old Testament in the story of Israel. Let's start by looking at Deuteronomy 4. I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's the fourth book in the Old Testament. The Jews. We know them as the chosen people. Or we could say the elect people. Alright? Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is what the Lord says to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells Israel they are a very special, privileged people. I'm going to read, I just want to start in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. What? Verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire? God says, you study your history books, Israel, and you look for any civilization in which God spoke to His people out of fire and still live, verse 33. Verse 34, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation? Remember, the Jews were in Egypt, and He brought them out of Egypt by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Verse 35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside Him. Verse 36, Out of heaven He lets you hear His voice. You are special, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire. And you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. Verse 37, And because He, God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power... God told Israel, You are very, very, very special. Not only has there not been another people whose God did this to them, but no other nation has had God, the God, speak to them and do the things for them as you have, that I have done for you. I have taken you out of the land of Egypt. I have spoken to you my words, and I did this because I loved your fathers and I chose their offspring. God says I chose their offspring. You can turn over a couple of pages, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're special. When we think of holy, we often think of sinless or you know a saint. The word holy means different, special. You are holy. You're special to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He did not choose the Philistines. He didn't choose the Amalekites. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He chose the Jews out of all the people. He said, you're going to be My people. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than the other people, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you. This is election. This is God says, I chose you, Israel. You are special. You are holy. There are so many other verses I could take you to that shows that Israel was chosen by God, but I think that would be beating a dead horse because I've never met anyone. There might be some people out there. I've never met anyone who has argued against Israel being chosen of God. And they're like, yeah, of course. God chose Israel. Everybody believes that. He didn't choose the Philistines. He didn't choose the Amorites. He chose Israel. Well, when you come to the pages of the New Testament, an amazing thing happens in the New Testament. The same language that is found in the Old Testament about God choosing His people is found in the New Testament about God choosing the church namely Gentiles and Jews, that God chose them. It's the same language as the Old Testament. It's applied to our age, our day and age, our salvation. This is where the controversy really begins to focus. You mean God chose us? Here's something to, to think about, just kind of a logical process. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that Israel didn't choose God. They didn't shop around and say, I think we'll take Yahweh. No, <coughs> Yahweh chose them. No one argues that. When we come to the pages of the New Testament, the same language about election of Israel is applied to the church. It's applied to us. Now, the burden of proof would be on somebody who says, oh, I don't think we're chosen the way Israel was chosen. Because the same language is used. If if it's something different, then... You would think somewhere in the New Testament God says, You know, I chose Israel this way in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament I do it totally different. You'd have to find a passage and a verse, and you'd have to come talk. You can come talk to me now if you want to, but I don't think you're going to find it anywhere in your Bible that says, Well, I did it one way in the Old Testament, but I do it differently in the New Testament. But yet that's what we're being taught in the churches today. Well, it's different in the New Testament. Well, why is it different? It's the same God. And he's doing the same thing. I'm going to give you several places in the New Testament that it's found. And I'm just going to read these to you. You don't have to turn to them all, but you might want to write them down. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring an accusation against God's elect? We're called elect. That's us. Romans 8. We went through Romans a a year or so ago in our church and Romans 8 is written to the church. It's written to Christians. And Paul says, who is going to bring a charge? Is there anybody that could charge one of God's elect? Us. No. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's elect ones, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, Kindness, humility. Put on then, you should clothe yourself as God's elect, humility and compassion and kindness. Because you're God's elect. You're God's chosen people. That's the same language that was used of Israel in the Old Testament. We're the chosen people. Titus 1.1 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of faith of God's elect. Paul says, I am an apostle, I am a servant of God for the faith of God's elect. Like, I'm, I'm ministering so that God's elect will come to faith. That's what he's saying there. That's pretty remarkable. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes this book to the elect exiles scattered about the, the Roman Empire. The elect exiles. You've been exiled, but you're chosen. You're chosen of God. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, this is a really amazing piece of Scripture. Because Peter takes quotations from the Old Testament that was applied to Israel. And we've all agreed, oh yeah, Israel, they were chosen. And he applies it to believers, to us today. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a chosen race. That's what Israel was. And as believers, that's what we are. We're elect people. So when you come to the New Testament, election is really important. It's a part of our identity. It's who we are. We're called the elect ones, the chosen ones. To think that Peter or Paul were to come and visit with us and greet us as... The chosen ones. That's so foreign to our way of thinking. We don't think of ourselves that way. But that's exactly what Paul and Peter both do when they address the church. They go, chosen ones. Elect ones. This is part of our identity of who we are. Let's look at the doctrine Explain now. If you believe the Bible, you say, I believe the Bible. Well, election is clearly in the Bible. So you have to believe in Election. I believe in election, right? You can't deny it. But the issue is really not the fact of election, it's how do you understand election? What does it mean to be elect? What I want to do is, I want to give you, first of all, I'm going to call them common explanations. Because it's not like the Bible doesn't address this. So what you have to decide is, okay, what does it mean to be elect? I'm sure there are many uh, explanations other than the true explanation, but there are a couple of real common ones that are prevalent in the church today. Because if people preach through the Bible and they come across election, they've got to explain it some way because it's there, right? So one of the common ways to explain election is that... God chooses the church and then he lets it up to people decide if they want to be in the church or not. That's called a corporate election. So God chose the church and it's up to you and I whether we're going to be in the church or not. And if we're in the church, then we're we're chosen. That may not be real popular, at least, you know, in the... Among the laity, but among scholars that reject the doctrine of election, that's well. I say reject. That's one of the ways that they get around the doctrine of election. They say, well, it's a it's a corporate election. God doesn't choose individuals; He just choose chose a group, and He lets people decide to be in that group or not. The most common way, the way that probably before I came to understand what the Bible said about it, the way I understood election, if I was pressed, I never really thought about it. I would. I know. I would say I was 10 years old when I started reading. My goal was to read through the whole Bible, and I remember reading through the whole Bible, and I don't ever remember hearing the word election or chosen. I read it, but it just, one of those things, it just escaped me. And if somebody would have pressed me, like, well, what does it mean to be elect? What does it mean to be chosen? I probably would have answered, okay, election means God chooses the people who choose Him. That's probably one of the most common explanations for election. God chooses the people. That's probably, if you would have just kept pressing me, I was like, well, yeah, God. if I choose him, then God chooses me. In either case, whether we're talking about a corporate election or God chooses the people who choose him, either one of those explanations we have to acknowledge that choice ultimately is our choice. And it's really not fair to talk about God electing us, because really what it is is we elect God, and if we elect God, then God will elect us. I don't read that in the Bible. The Bible has a very clear explanation for it. If we were left to ourselves... One of those common explanations would probably suffice. That must be it. But the Bible doesn't leave it for us to define. It tells us what election means. So I'm going to share with you the biblical explanation. This is where I want you to see it in Scripture. And there, there are two words that come to mind when we understand election from a biblical perspective. The first word... Unconditional. What do we mean? Because that's our that's our crostic tulip, T total depravity, U unconditional election. Here's this word unconditional election. In the common explanation, there is a condition for God choosing. If they choose me, I'll choose them. If they choose the church, I'll choose them. There's a condition. If you don't choose it, then you're not chosen. Unconditional election says there are no conditions. God did not choose you based upon any condition that you did, any act, any merit, or any thing that you did. That was not the basis of God choosing you. It was unconditional. The word unconditional election is another word for grace. Again, if you believe the Bible, you know you're saved by grace. The Bible says you can't be saved by works. You can't do good works. We don't really know. Well, what does it mean by grace? Well, grace means what? Unmerited favor. It means you you don't deserve it, but He saves you anyway. If we were left to explain it on our own, those common explanations would make the most sense. They, uh, there wouldn't really be any scandal about that. wouldn't be any controversy. There wouldn't be any problem. No one would be arguing about election because that makes perfect sense to us. God chooses the people that choose Him. That makes perfect sense to me. But when you start talking about unconditional election, meaning God chooses people not based on any conditions, then is when we start getting problems. Unconditional election is really the definition of grace itself. It's one of the doctrines of grace. It means that God's choice of sinners is not based upon any factor or merit or act of the sinner. It's undeserved. God chooses to save some. So if we back up a little bit in the total depravity, all men are sinful, unwilling to save themselves. The doctrine of unconditional election, God sees all of humanity. In Marty read for us Romans 3, that God looks down from heaven and all the sons of men, they are, there's none that seek after Him. No, not one. There's none that do, do good. Out of all the sea of humanity, there is not one that does good, not one that will seek after Him. In unconditional election, God says, that's fine, but I'm going to save some anyway. That's the doctrine of unconditional election. Where is this top in the Bible? Well, let's look at some of the places that unconditional election is found. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn. Let's start with Ephesians two eight and nine. Speaking of awana, if you went through awana, this would be a verse that you would have learned when you were in Iwana. I know it today. Sometimes I get mixed up between the King James and the New American Standard and the ESV, but I know this verse. Ephesians 2 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You're saved by grace. You didn't deserve it. There was nothing you did. Even faith itself was not of yourself. Wow. Faith is not of yourself. God had to teach you. God had to open your eyes so you could have faith. It's not even of yourself. It, It is a gift of God, not of works, Lest anybody should be boasting. There's one thing you will never find in heaven: boasting. No, never, ever, ever. Everyone that goes to heaven is going to be, wow! I didn't deserve this. God, you are so good. Your grace. It's not because I kept enough rules. I didn't do any. This is grace. When we did the first message, the introduction, we looked at this verse, for by grace are you saved through faith. And I asked the question, what is the relationship for by grace you are saved through faith? I'm saved through faith. That means I place my faith in Christ. That's how God saves me, by grace. And I asked the question, well, how, what's the relationship between my, the faith and grace? How do these two work together? And the answer is this, That my faith is a result of grace. My faith is because of grace. My faith is a result of my election. I believe because God has chosen me. That's why I believe. That's why you believe. You believe because you've been chosen. That's a pretty remarkable statement. We're called elect. Because we believe, and we believe because we're elect. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible that, I mean, we can verify this? Is, is this really the way it is, or is this just, what is going on here? I want you to hold your place in Ephesians, because we're going to come back here. I've I got a little marker there, but I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are preaching together in a city called Antioch. And you can read it for yourself. Paul begins to preach, and he's preaching largely to Jews. And he tells them about Jesus, and he tells them about their history and what happened and who Jesus is, that He is God's Son. Um, Verse 42, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Verse 44, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What a sight that would have been. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. I mean, at one minute they're intrigued and now they're like, no, 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 that's not true. That's not... They're contradicting what he's saying. And Paul spoke out boldly and basically says, listen, Jews, if you reject this, let me tell you something. Verse 47, I'm going to be a light for the Gentiles. I'm going to save Gentiles. And I want to draw your attention to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Wow. As many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. There it is. They believed because they were appointed. They believed because they were chosen. That's why they believed. That's why it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Let's go back to Ephesians because I want you to. I'm going. To, I'm working backwards in Ephesians. Paul says in verse two, chapter two, verses eight and nine, "You're saved by grace. You're you're not saved by your works. It's not because you're good. But back up to chapter two, verse one. Paul goes out of his way to express that there was nothing special in us. Those of us that are sitting here now who are Christians, we are not Christians because there was something better about us. I was in Galatians 2 and it wasn't adding up. So let me get to Ephesians 2. You were dead. You, Ephesians, the church, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Marty talked about being dead last week. That means unable. Just like Steve said, if you're dead, you can't do anything. In which you once walked according following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all me, Pastor Tim, Lori, every one of us we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There was nothing different in us. God did not look down and say, You know, Tim is he's just special. He's, he's just got a sweet spirit about him, and I, I want him. He was a child of wrath, just like everybody else. He was a rotten sinner. Verse five says that or verse four says, "But God, being rich in mercy." because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. See, you were just like everybody else. Paul tells us even something more amazing about this grace. It was God who made you alive. You were just like anybody else. But you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, and he tells us the timing of God's election. When did God choose us? In the common explanation, well, if God sees that I choose Him, then He chooses me. Ephesians one four, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God chose me for salvation before He even created the world. You talk about mind-boggling. Wow. How do you... How do you explain that? How? I mean there is an ocean of depth in that statement. It's so deep I can't go down without drowning. I I can't fathom. I don't even know what all it means except Paul's telling me God chose us before he even created the world. That's pretty remarkable. I want you to look at one other passage of Scripture, Titus chapter 3. Turn to your right, right before Hebrews, Philemon, then there's Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. I'm going to read Titus 3 verse 3. And again, you see the same theme over and over. We were sinners just like everybody else, but God saved us by His mercy. For we ourselves were once foolish, verse 3, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Wow. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, uh, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's the same story. You, You didn't get saved because you were smarter or better or made the right choice. You were on the road to hell and He saved you anyway. My conversion was radical when I came to understand election. I had all kinds of questions about why was I a Christian and other people weren't. And as I was trying to answer that, I would thought, well, I'm a Christian because my dad's a pastor. I'm a Christian because I'm obviously smarter than my neighbors are or better than my... Aunt. And every answer that I came up with did not make a lick of sense compared to Scripture. And as I came to understand the doctrine of election, that answered for me why I was a Christian. I was a Christian because God chose to have mercy on me. And it changed my life. All of a sudden, I understood grace. I was like, okay, that's grace. I understood who God was. This I never knew God in that way before. There's one other word that the Bible... The Bible says more about our election beyond just being unconditional, not because of anything in us. The word I came is kind of clever, but it's unconventional. Notice the two U's there. Unconventional. God. The Bible gives us even more insight into who God chooses... And the people that he chooses is very unconventional, means that's not the way it's normally done. If you grew up in elementary school, played kickball or baseball, you you know what it's like when they say, okay, let's get two captains, we're going to pick teams. You know, for some people that was dreadful because you'd be the last person they picked, right? Like, oh, I hate this. It's a really, really awkward place because what do you do? You go for the best, you go for the smartest, you go for the best athletes, the people that're going to win and that's who you choose and then the worst are the last. they're like, okay, you come on and you know you come on. We all are very familiar with that. How does God choose? The Bible just turns everything upside down. First Corinthians chapter 2. Or chapter 1, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, uh, I want you to do something. Look around the church and look at the people who are Christians. And it's kind of a backhanded compliment, but he says, look around. There's not too many of you that are uh, so great. There's not too many of you that are real uh, popular I don't know anybody here that's been to Hollywood. don't know anybody that's in the upper echelons of political power. I don't know too many millionaires or billionaires sitting here in this room. Paul says, look around. And he says in verse 26, Consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's unconventional. The world picks the mighty, the world picks the noble, the world picks the rich, the world picks the famous, and God says, I pick the nobodies. You wouldn't know this unless this is in the Bible. You don't make this stuff up. God says, I delight in choosing nobodies because when they get to heaven, I don't want anybody boasting. I want a salvation where I get all the glory. We see this over and over again in the New Testament. Let's just spend a little bit on our response How do we respond to this? Well, I've got three things here. First of all, it's it's humbling. It's very humbling. Paul is right in Colossians 3.12, as God's elect put on kindness and humility. When you understand the doctrines of election, Grace really is amazing. You sing amazing grace with a new fervor. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No one sings about the wonderful moment of their great decision for Christ and how great they were for choosing Christ. No, we don't sing that. We sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's humbling. That's one of the reasons why it's so often resisted. Because it humbles human pride. There are people, and I think sincere Christians often, who cannot swallow their pride and recognize that they are saved by nothing less than the sheer mercy of God alone. They just don't get it. They. They are holding on to some autonomous element where, no, I, I chose God. I, I, I was the one that made this decision. And they, they hold on to that. I, much of the opposition against the doctrine of election is because it humbles us. It shows that we are not masters of our own fate. We don't choose our own destiny. That's that's amazing. I mean, I'm, I was relying upon God. There's, a, there's another response... that people have to the doctrine of election, it's it's not necessarily a positive response, it's a negative response. When we talk about God choosing to save some and not everyone, one of the first things that people say is, well, that's not fair. How, How can that be fair? There are many people who love the Lord and they don't believe in election. And the reason they don't believe in election is because they think that they are defending the honor of God because they think God is unf- that would be unfair and so they in all sincerity are defending God by denying election because they don't want God to be charged with unfairness that's God is not unfair it's not fair that God would choose one and not choose the other. here's how someone once characterized election. There's a farmer. This farmer has a piece of property. He's got a big pond on the property. And on that property, he put a sign, no trespassing. And then by the pond, he put a sign that says, no swimming. Three boys saw that sign and decided to trespass anyway. They went on the property when they shouldn't have been on the property. They were told not to go on the property. And then they proceeded to get into the pool, even though it says no swimming. And they're swimming in the pool, and all of a sudden they start to drown. And so three of the boys are starting to drown. The farmer shows up, and he sees three boys drowning in his pool. They are doing what they shouldn't have been doing. They broke all the laws, and so this farmer decides to save one of the boys, and he lets the other two drown. They say that's your doctrine of election. That's not fair. I think I'll save the boy in blue shorts. I like blue shorts, so I'll save him. The other two, I just watch him drown. You have to be very careful how people characterize this issue. Because based upon that characterization, God would not be a very good God, He'd not be a very just God. Just, well, we're going to let him drown. And just, I just—I mean—it's a very ugly picture if you think about it. I mean, and this is this is what happens when you go out of this place and people are against the doctrine. You mean you believe in a God who's standing there on the on the by the pond watching boys die, gasping and reaching out and saying "Save me!" and he just sits there and he goes, "Nope, you're not chosen. I, I'll I'll save you." And the others just drowned. That's how a lot of people think of the doctrine of election. Here's here's the. The real, real problem with that whole characterization. It's the problem with the boys. See, the boys represent mankind, right? I, I still have the, that image in my mind. They're in the, in the pond drowning, and they're, you know, help me, help me, save me. And God, no, I'll save you. No, I'm not going to save you. That characterization will never, ever be found in the Bible. Let me put, give you an illustration of the characterization that would be more accurate and biblical. Um, we'll do the same boys. When we were in Laos on a missions project, we were walking down the... We were out in the middle of nowhere in Laos, and they had these signs. I mean, I ever saw it? And it was in English, which was amazing. Do not enter unexploded ordinances. There were signs everywhere. Don't go out in this field. There are, there are bombs everywhere in this field. This, of course you know, were on here. Let's just imagine we have a landmine field. Signs says don't go there. But let's even do something else. We're going to put a, a farmer or a man on the road, and he's pleading with these boys, "Don't go on this field. Stay away from these fields." And these boys laugh at him, they mock him, they make fun of him, and they run through the field. And even while they're running through the field, the man's saying, "Stop! Stop! Quit going that way. Turn. Do not go that way. You are going to die." And they laugh at him and they mock him. He tries to send if people stop them, sends people to him, and they make fun of him and they go headlong into the land minefield and then boom, it blows up and they die you see, the Bible does not picture ever man wanting to be saved and crying, oh God save me, save me and God goes, no I'm sorry <laughs> no, I'm going to choose you, but no, not you too No, the Bible pictures man thumbing their nose at God, doing exactly what they want to do. They love their sin. They want to go their way. And God is saying, why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you stay in the way? I mean, this is the language of God in Ezekiel. This is the language of God saying, why will you die? And man in his obstinacy goes headlong into his sin. You could turn in your Bibles if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5:20. Listen to the language of scripture. Listen to the language of the apostle Paul. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God beg you. Why? God, we're I mean, this is a strong language. We are voices, ambassadors of God Himself. We are imploring you, please be reconciled to God. Don't go this way. People smirk. Yeah, that's nice. Love you too. And they keep doing exactly what they want to do. The issue of fairness... In salvation does not apply. Because if we're going to talk about fairness, every one of us in this room would be consumed. That's fair. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't deserve eternal damnation. That's justice. When you talk about salvation, we are not talking about what is fair, because if we got what was fair, what was just, none of us would receive salvation. When you talk about salvation, it's not in the category of fairness, it's in the category of mercy. And God doesn't owe anyone mercy, or it wouldn't be mercy. God can choose to have mercy on whomever He wants. It's kind of ironic because the argument of injustice is actually found in the Bible when it talks about election. Romans chapter 9. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, Marty referenced this I think last time, he gives the example of... uh, Jacob and Esau. Verse 11 says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is that fair? This is pretty exciting because when you understand the doctrine of election correctly, the objection would be wait a second, that's not fair. If that isn't the logical outflow, then you may not understand the doctrine of election. The the common explanation of election, like I choose God and he chooses me, there's no unfairness in that. I wouldn't say, Well, that's unfair. God chooses the church, and if you decide to be in the church, then He'll choose you too. There's nothing unfair about that. That's perfect. Yeah, that's, that's I like that, God. That works for me. That's fair. But that's not what Paul taught. He says God can have mercy on whoever He wants, and you're going to say, well, wait a second, that's not fair. Then you understand the doctrine of election. Notice what he says. Is there injustice on God's part? No, there's no injustice on God's part. God is not just. The issue of salvation is not about justice. It's about mercy. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's another response to this. Well, what about then the people who aren't saved, if God doesn't choose them, then it's not their fault, right? How can God find fault with somebody? I mean, it's not their fault. If if I can only be saved because God chooses me, then what about the people that aren't saved? It's not their fault. It's God's fault, right? Well, ironically, again, that's the same issue that the Apostle Paul brings up in Romans nine, verse nineteen. You will say to me then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? You know what the answer is? God still finds fault. He still why the question is why does he still find fault? And the answer is he still does find fault. Man is still completely responsible for their eternal ruin, not God. He still blames them. They are at fault for it. Not God. It's not like, oh, well, they're not saved because God didn't choose them. That's not the the proper use of the doctrine of election. Paul says it's not. God does find fault with them. It is wrong and sinful for them to be lost because they have rejected God. It is wrong. He does find fault with them. He finds fault with them because they are doing exactly what they want to do. They don't want to repent. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to submit their autonomous life. They don't want to be under His rule. They want to live how they want to live. It is their fault. Ultimately, as a Christian, our response to this must be one of submission. It is a difficult doctrine. We don't understand any more than what is written. Why did God choose me? I don't know. I have no idea. Except it says with the good pleasure of his will. That's I mean there's I have no earthly explanation. I have a choice though. I can submit to what the Bible says or I can twist scripture to make it fit a scenario that I'm more comfortable with. But I think anyone that wants a genuine relationship with God and sees it in His Word, we realize, I, I need to submit to the Word. I need to submit to... This is what God has said in His Word. You know, why, why preach something like this? Because it is so controversial. People get angry. They get offensive. People have left our church because of this. Well, one answer is because it's taught in Scripture. It's clearly taught in Scripture, but it even goes deeper than that. And it's right here in Romans chapter 9. It's rooted in the very nature of God. This is who God is. I'm going to read it again. Romans 9, verse 15. This is where God revealed Himself to Moses. He's quoting straight out of Exodus. For the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The very nature of being God, this is His prerogative as God. I'm God and I can choose to have mercy on anybody I want because I'm God. Randy reminded me a couple of weeks ago that I have in the past called myself a six-point Calvinist. Remember the word tulip, T-U-L-I-P is five points. I've called myself a six-point Calvinist and I couldn't figure out how to put it into the, the tulip without messing everything up. Until I came up with a brilliant A tulip. (laughs) There's only one absolute free being in the world, and that's God. He's free, he can do whatever he wants. And if you know who God is, in the doctrine of election, if you submit to who God is, that's no problem, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. He's absolutely free. Because He's God. And I want to be faithful, representative of who He is. I don't want to tell you He's something that He's not. That would be a false teacher. He's God and He can do what He wants. That's Paul's argument. He can have mercy on whoever He has mercy. To some people, the doctrine of election excludes people from salvation. That's not how the Bible presents it. It's because of election that people are included in salvation. I don't care who you know, I don't care who you are how far gone you may be, and you think, oh, there is no hope for that person. Because of the doctrine of election, there's always hope for them. It doesn't matter how far down the road you go. If it's not a person's will that exerts, there is always hope that God may yet have mercy on them. So when I pray for people... The doctrine of election doesn't never limits my prayer. It is the doctrine of election that makes me pray for people that are lost. When I prayed for the salvation of my boys, I didn't pray like, oh, I don't know if they're elect or not. I prayed, Lord, I know them because I know me and I know my heart that if you didn't go after me, I would have never chosen you. And I know their heart. They will never pursue you. God, in your mercy, will you pursue them? Will you save them? Because you're sovereign. See, there's a certain sense where as Christians, the Bible has to be the boundaries of our thinking. There are scenarios out there that I don't understand and we could go all these places where the Bible doesn't go, but I am very content in leaving my mind enclosed in what the Bible says and just be comfortable with that. The Bible says God is absolutely sovereign and He chooses for salvation. And that that's how I pray not to exclude people from salvation, but it's the only hope of their salvation. This is why we can go to Chad and one of the most difficult places in the world, people that are steeped in Islam, and we can send missionaries because salvation does not depend on human will, but on God who shows mercy. And He can save a Muslim steeped in Islam. And He can save a person steeped in sin. He can save a person in drug addiction and alcohol addiction and sexual sins. And He can save them. Because He is Almighty God He can have mercy on whomever He has mercy. So, next week, we'll look, it'll probably take a couple of weeks, but we're going to look at limited atonement. I know there's a lot of questions about that. I'd be happy to visit with you about this if you have questions. And if you've never heard this before, you're not alone. You're not a weirdo. You're not stupid. It's not something that's being taught in the church, but it is taught clearly in the Bible. So I hope that you'll... Wrestle with these things. Let me just pray and you'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. And when we understand election, we understand grace. God's grace. Your grace. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. We are the elect ones. This... this. Brothers and sisters, I just want you to think of yourself in the terms of Scripture puts on you. You are the elect of God. If you're the elect of God, God is for you. He's not against you. I don't know what's going on, but He's for you. He loves you. He chose you before the foundation of the earth, the world. You're special. You are loved in a unique way. Lord, may you bless this study. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.